The presenting sponsor of Sober Stories is Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits, a spirits company on a quest to replicate and replicate well and as many different alcoholic spirits as possible, allowing us to drink our way. With over 17 spirits, five pre-mixed cocktails, and one spectacular sparkling wine, all without alcohol, Liars has become the Sober Stories team's standard for zero-proof drinks that feel festive and celebratory. Sober Stories is a mission-based company. You can find our company's core values right on our about page, and we are committed to partnering with other brands who put people and planet over profit too, which is why we love Wires. They have a sustainability and social responsibility mission at the forefront of their business with 100% recyclable packaging and a supply chain that reduces intercontinental freighting, a leading contributor to carbon emissions. They also outline their core values at Liars, which are mateship, awesomeness, the pay it forward principle, and empowered independence. In our opinion, Liar's commitment to people and planet makes their sips that much sweeter. Head over to liars.com and use code SOBERSTORIES1010, that's the number 10, the word 10, for 10% off your purchase. Liars gives you the freedom to drink your way, to not just provide an alternative to those who don't wish to imbibe alcohol, but to ensure that everyone can enjoy the mirth and the merriment of a soiree or shindig. Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be chief story steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Hey, Silver Stories family. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful Friday. Before we dive into our conversation today, I want to put a little bug in your ear. As you might know, Silver Stories can be found across different kinds of mediums, from podcast to YouTube to blog. We do this because we know you may have different ways you prefer to consume storytelling. I'm a podcast girl, obviously, but maybe you're not. One of the coolest parts of our blog specifically is that we publish community stories submitted by you. We'd love to tell your sober story, the unique story of you and your relationship without alcohol. If you'd like to be considered, submit your 1,500 to 2,500 word story through our form on wearesoberstories.com slash your dash story. Your story matters and we would love to share it. I've been looking forward to having this conversation for a long time. I had the chance to interview Alex McRoberts of the Sober Yoga Girl podcast and the Mindful Life Practice. Alex is a 500-hour registered yoga teacher, a certified life coach, an entrepreneur, podcaster, and an Ontario certified teacher. She has taught yoga internationally in Canada, where she's from, in Kuwait, where she called home for five years, and she now resides in Bali, Indonesia. When Alex became sober in 2019, yoga played a key role in her sober journey. In 2020, she founded the Mindful Life Practice Community and Sober Curious Yoga, an online community with participants from all over the world who are changing their relationship with alcohol using mindfulness techniques like yoga, meditation, community, and journaling. Alex and I dug into some really great topics like the power of mindfulness and movement for this whole alcohol-free thing and what it's like to find purpose and passion after alcohol. I do want to give a quick content warning. In this episode, Alex refers to suicidal thoughts she experienced in early sobriety. If that's a tempting subject for you, please know you are always welcome to hit next and listen to our past sober stories. After you give today's episode a listen, tag Alex and let us know your biggest takeaways. Here we go. All right, my friends, let us welcome Alex McRoberts to the Sober Stories podcast. Alex, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. 
I am really excited to share more about your story with our audience. But before we dig into the the juicy details, can you give them kind of the high notes, the story of you, where you are, what you do, who you do life with, what it looks like for you right now? Yeah, absolutely. So I am originally from Toronto. I'm Canadian. I have lived overseas for the last seven years pretty much all my 20s. And so I moved out to Kuwait when I was 23 to become a school teacher, then moved over to Abu Dhabi, the UAE. And during the pandemic, so I got sober right before the pandemic in 2019. And then during the pandemic, um, created this online business that has a lot of work to do with sobriety and yoga. And so that's what I do full time. And my life is kind of split between two places. So I'm living in Bali, but my business is based in Dubai. So I'm a little bit, um, that's why I'm here doing some like logistical stuff in Dubai right now. So I imagine you have a really good CPA to navigate how to do that (laughs) for the the tax side of that. What does CPA mean? Oh, um, oh no, no. Uh, That's a great question. (laughs) Certified public (laughs) accountant, whoever deals with your taxes, I Uh, imagine. (laughs) Yeah, a little complex being in, in so many different locations. Um, it is, funny, yeah, I guess exactly. Maybe that's not even a Canadian thing. Anyway, amazing. So you live overseas now. You teach yoga. You have this really wonderful business. And tell us how this all came to be. What is the story of you and alcohol and the person that you are today? Yeah. So I was – I would say I just had a normal – kind of Canadian upbringing around alcohol. People drank, they drank for fun, drank at family gatherings, drank in high school with my friends. And I mean, I've always spoken about it as a very normal um, teenagehood. Although of course, as we always, we all experience, once you get into sobriety, you're like peeling back layers of an onion. And I'm realizing more and more that there was actually a lot of kind of, um, things that I didn't identify as like traumatic experiences as a teenager Mm. that were happening for me. And so alcohol for me became a coping mechanism because I didn't know how to process kind of what I was dealing with. And I then got into this habit and it became, I don't know when it became like, it's like what came first, the chicken or the Mm -hmm. egg? Like, so I started experiencing mood disorder symptoms at a really young age, but it was also the same time I started drinking also the same time that I was going through all this um, stuff. And so it's like, what really started all of this? I don't know, but it hit a point where I remember like I signed the job in Kuwait and every other person was saying to me, like, you're going to get arrested. Like, you know, that alcohol is illegal in that country. Right. Mm. Um, and so people knew me as like the drinker party girl. And so they were concerned. Everyone was concerned about me moving to a country where alcohol was illegal. And I yeah. mean, that should have been a red flag that that was like everyone's first thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was there for two years. And this for me, I always say, you know, I had really, really extreme experiences around booze in my 20s. And I think had I not gone through these, I don't know if I would be sober today. Um, mm. I think I would still be drinking if I were still in Canada. Like, I think it would have been a much slower hit to that point of like rock bottom. But because I was in these extreme situations, it was like really accelerated. So Mm -hmm. I'm in Kuwait where alcohol is illegal. I become obsessed with like making it, dating guys who can get me it. Um, Yeah, I learned how to make wine. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's a little terrifying. Yeah. I, I seriously, people are always like, yeah, you're going to like have terrible side effects and like you're yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Mm-hmm. I like to think that all my years of sobriety are going to make up for it. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah. But I went through this extreme experience in Kuwait and, you know, I start traveling. So I I meet someone, I meet a partner that we become in this very serious relationship really quickly. And, you know, he's, we're flying to Dubai every other weekend and partying in Dubai. And so Dubai is like the party capital of the region. So, so many parts of the region are dry or alcohol is illegal, or they're very conservative mm-hmm. and traditional. So Dubai is like the hot spot where people go for the weekend. They start drinking at noon on a Friday, drink all mm. night. Um, and so when I signed my contract here, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get to live where mm. alcohol is like, I'm going to live in this paradise. And then so to Finally. go from like, mm-hmm, so to go from this sober world or not, it wasn't sober, but like the dry um, world of Kuwait to then come into the party central of Dubai. And I start drinking at noon on the weekends and it's only a matter of time. Like, I think I was there for a year, less than a year and a half before I was like, I have to quit drinking. Hmm. And so originally it was only 28 days. So I was like, I'm just going to quit drinking for a month and then I'm going to be normal then and go back. And be normal. I just yeah. <laughs> yeah, got through like 11, I think it was like 11 days when I was like, hmm. wow, I need to do this for longer. So then I said, okay, 90 days. And then there was this point around maybe 20 days where I was like, wait, my life is so much better sober. I'm just going to do hmm. this forever. And here I am. <laughs> Here you are. You know, I think so many of us have had that thought of like, I'm just going to take this break or I'm going to do dry January or I'm going to do a whole 30 challenge or 75 hard or whatever. Mm. And then I'm going to be normal. Then my drinking is going to be fixed. It's going to be normal. And I, I really resonate with that thought. But also I think it's so interesting that we have this idea that it's it there there is normality and or there is normalcy within alcohol consumption, especially if we already have an an off relationship with it that you know maybe this break will fix us totally. and and tell me more it's really interesting that you describe this experience as kind of a chicken or the egg experience because I feel very similar about my own. It was one of those things is it's like is it this undiagnosed depression and anxiety that I have, which which I have been diagnosed with since in adulthood. And when my drinking was really escalated, it was undiagnosed postpartum depression on top of that. Or was it the drinking? Or did the drinking make it worse? Or am I more prone to trouble with alcohol because of these these things? And I think that – from a clinical standpoint, I, I'm, I'm my background's in clinical therapy, and, and the answer is we don't really know. And mm-hmm. the answer is that these are compounding effects, and that they deeply interact with each other, and that there are resiliency and vulnerability markers that indicate people who are going to struggle with these challenges. But I think this idea of the chicken or the egg is something that a lot of people are going to listen to and say that's how I feel about it. And I can't quite figure it out. So when you were exploring this early stage of sobriety and also going through this diagnosis of mood disorder, what did that look like on like a tangible level for you? How did you navigate that in those early days? Yeah. So I actually got diagnosed with the mood disorder at a much younger age. Um, Hmm. And 
I, so I was diagnosed in 2014 and I quit drinking in 2019. So it was, Mm. um, a long period of time in which I was, I was like, I think I was like a pretty high functioning, um, Mm -hmm. person with this mood disorder that they had seen, but that was because I was doing so much yoga. Like I was struggling so much and crying out for help and not getting it. And then I found yoga and I just became like addicted to yoga. So I was going to yoga every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. And that saved me. But mm-hmm. I then also was drinking at night. And um, mm-hmm. I think when I walked into psychiatry, so that this was a big struggle that I went through was that I knew that I had a mood disorder from a very young age because it is genetic in one side of my family and there's mm-hmm. lots of issues in one side of my family. And I could see it in myself. And I, you know, and I took a psychology course and I was like, this is it. I read the book and I was like, this is what yeah. I have. <laughs> and I, t- yeah. and I told my parents and they didn't believe me. And Mm. part of it was that I think like, I think they were afraid of what it would be like because they've seen the worst case of that, which is like, Mm. you know, unable to hold a job or unable to function. And they didn't want that for me. And so it was easier Mm -hmm. to just be like, it's not real. Um, (laughs) You're not actually experiencing that than hearing what I was going through. And so I actually went through about five years of me trying to get diagnosed and going to doctors and on my own while I was in university, not having any parental support. And then the doctors didn't think that I mm. had it because I was like, um, you know, doing yoga and I, I didn't specifically, I was doing well. And I didn't specifically say, I never expressed my suicidal thoughts in words mm. to them because I was afraid that that would make me seem like I, like I was very, I was so self-conscious of what I even said around therapists because they thought they were mm. judging me. Like that's how much mm-hmm. I had going on. And so I was navigating this whole thing alone. And when I finally got diagnosed in 2014, I still didn't even believe that I had it. Like, mm. so, and so I didn't even tell my parents and I just started taking meds on my own. And then, you know, I moved across the world to Kuwait and in Kuwait, <laughs> it's like, if we think there's mental health stigma in hmm. North America, like try the Middle yeah. East, <laughs> like in the yeah. Middle East, you couldn't even, you couldn't even say to a parent, like, I think your child might be suffering with such and such. You know, I was a grade one teacher and it's like in Kuwait where I first worked, you didn't even speak of a potential, mm. even this, even like something like, um, having, dyslexia, for example, it was like seen as a tarnish on the name. That being said, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, I have, they are amazing and they are really, really, really trying to be progressive and moving forward. And in in five years, you know, they had the special Olympics, they got a mental Mm -hmm. health hotline, they've decriminalized suicide. Like, so to be Mm -hmm. fair, the UAE has done an amazing job in the past five years, but you know, I came over here and was so alone and that's when things really, um, exploded for me in the booze mm-hmm. and I had no counseling and no supports. And, um, yeah, what was, I don't even like, what, what was even your question? How, how <laughs> did you find sobriety in that experience when, when it was yeah. so isolated and it was so stigmatized to have mental health and this was impacting your drinking and, and all of the pieces that tiptoed you into being sober in 2019? So the first thing I like to tell people is that for me, it got worse before it got better. And I think that's really important because you have to have that belief that it's going to get better. But for me, the first 11 days of sobriety, I've only recently started talking about having suicidal thoughts. Like it wasn't something Mm. I previously spoke about publicly. And the first 11 days of my sobriety was the lowest point other than Mm. like a breakdown I had had two years before, like the suicidal thoughts were, um, 
it was probably my second lowest point in my life. And I had to just keep believing, like, I don't know what it was, like this faith that things would get better. Like I have no idea because I didn't know. I didn't know what adult life was going to be like sober. Like I had no idea, but I just had to keep trusting that it was going to get better. And those 11 days like were so bad. And then I just, I'll never forget. Like, I feel like it was like day 12 when finally like the the sun started shining and I was like, this was worth Mm. it, you know? And so I was, yeah, just really suffering with suicidal thoughts and like panic attacks. And then as soon as I hit around two weeks, it all just was like good, you know, but I had to get there. And that's not to say that my life is like perfect, but I certainly the lows are never that low. They're never mm-hmm. that long. There's, I don't, I don't experience mood disorder symptoms in any way like I used to. I also do a ton of yoga and like, yeah. <laughs> you know, live, live yoga basically full time. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, and, and this idea of those early days being so difficult while dealing with, with, a mood disorder and heavy alcohol use makes a lot of sense for me from like the neuroscience standpoint because one thing yeah. people don't expect when they quit drinking is that we may become dopamine deficient in our brain when we first quit drinking. So dopamine is the, the neurotransmitter that makes us feel good. We get dopamine from all sorts of things. Our brain naturally produces dopamine, but we get a ton of dopamine from alcohol use. And mm-hmm. with sustained use over time, with continued exposure to these high spikes of dopamine from alcohol, our brain starts to produce less of it on its own. And so mm-hmm. when we remove the alcohol, we have a brain that's not as not producing as much dopamine and we no longer have our dopamine source. And so I think a lot of people step into these early days and they have this perception of the pink cloud. There's this idea of the pink yeah. cloud out there, which is this immediate feeling of euphoria and feeling well in your body and excited and good and happy and energetic. And a lot of people go into quitting drinking or removing alcohol for a period of time, expecting the pink cloud without understanding these other physiological interactions that may have already been happening in their bodies. So it makes a lot of sense to me that those early days are were, were so difficult for you. And I think that that's such an important message to share and to 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 talk about because when people see you or, or I on social media mm-hmm. with like years and years of sobriety, what they don't see is those early days or they don't see the time that yeah. you, you know, you did 11 days and then you went back to drinking or that you did 90 days. Like this slow progression over time and this resilience building and this tool building that it takes while understanding our physiology, while understanding our our environment and our social settings. And, and I think it's really just very impactful to share that experience and what the reality of it was for you because I think that yeah. so many people are going to be able to see themselves in that and then finally understand what was happening. So you yeah. talk a lot about yoga and what you do now for, for work. Can you tell us more about how you went from first grade teacher to living internationally, doing this this business, this beautiful mindfulness business where you teach other yoga teachers and you teach yoga and you do retreats and live this very kind of nomadic life? How did you go from first grade teacher to that? Yeah. Um, I love this question and I love you mentioned a moment ago about the pink clouds um, because I definitely had the pink clouds. 
after mm. I get through this um, 11 days, I had this mm-hmm. like euphoria for a short period of time of like, life is awesome. I love Abu Dhabi. <laughs> love being a teacher. Wow. Like I remember, I distinctly remember driving to work one morning, not being hungover and looking at the Abu Dhabi Grand Mosque. And it was like, I had never seen the building before. And I started mm. to cry. I was like, this is the most beautiful thing I've seen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is a beautiful building to be fair. But um, I went through this period of like, wow, everything is fixed now and it's awesome and I love everything. And then I hit the come down from the pink clouds. And this was the moment when life set back into normal and I was like, wait, I still hate this. I'm just sober. (laughs) And that's the thing. I never wanted to be a teacher ever. Mm -hmm. Um, It was like kind of an idea put in my head by – my dad <laughs> long time ago. And then I just kind of went with it. It was a career. Then I got to international teaching and I was like, this is cool. I got to vacation. And, but the thing is I love teaching. I love the profession of sharing wisdom and teaching people, but I mm. just cannot handle the nervous system overload of having 26 yeah. children. <laughs> I just can't. <laughs> okay. Like, I'm laughing because I have a six-year-old and every time I, <laughs> we just went to a birthday party this weekend. And when I watch like 12 six-year-olds in one contained space. I'm like, God bless teachers. God bless teachers. It's unbelievable. (laughs) And the thing is that you just – the thing is like it's not a predictable environment. You can never predict (laughs) the mood someone's going to be in, what's going to happen, the drama. And you're not only dealing with these 26 kids, you're dealing with their parents. Yeah. (laughs) And sometimes they're awesome. And and I – like I remember saying to my TA sitting down with her and saying, I, I hate this. This class is so bad behaved because in the year I got sober, I had a really challenging class. And she said mm. to me, Alex, you know, it's just this class of kids. And I said to her, you know, Bay, I've been a teacher for four years and three out of four of them have been bad. <laughs> We've only had one class that's been good. We have one group, <laughs> good group of kids, right? Yeah. And that's 75% and I just can't do a career Ugh. like this. Like I just can't. Yeah. So she said to me, my assistant teacher said, you know, you should meet my psychic. And she, and she called him her fortune teller. She'd been talking about him for a long time. And um, she said to me, you know, you should go down to Dubai, meet this guy. And so I ended up saying, you know, I don't really believe in psychics. I don't believe in fortune tellers, tarot card readers. I'm not into that stuff, but whatever. I don't really have anything to lose. And at the worst case, mm-hmm. it's just some money I spent, right? And once you're sober, you like have a bit more money for stuff. So yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm going to meet this guy. So I literally drive an hour and 40 minutes like from Abu Dhabi to Dubai. And I got into his house and he says, okay, close your eyes, count down from 21 to one, open your eyes, I open my eyes. And he goes, you were never meant to be a teacher. You were meant to be mm. a healer. And like, I will never forget that, that line. Cause I just started sobbing. Like I started crying so hard and he goes, he's like, you're going to you know, start this retreat center. It's going to be a fusion of everything like Tai Chi. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, (laughs) I'm like, I'm not a Tai Chi teacher, but I, I teach yoga. And he goes, oh yeah, I think it's yoga. So, which makes me Mm -hmm. believe that he kind of sees visions and then shares them in words. Cause he also Mm -hmm. keeps, he kept saying South America, South America. And I'm like, I think it's Bali. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) And so, Mm -hmm. yes. And so this was like the life-changing hour of my life. This changed my life. And I'm still really good friends with this psychic to this day. We do a lot of work together. Um, You can actually buy sessions with him on my website. And so many people buy sessions with him. I swear I'm not like getting a commission. Um, But I do all of it because he literally changed my life. And Mm. what he did for me was 
I wanted to be a yoga teacher all along, right? I started teaching yoga in 2014. I told my parents, like, I'm just, I'm going to just stay here and be a yoga teacher. And they're like, you know, we really would like you to get a job. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing is that I just had this dream, but I didn't think it was possible. I was like, you know, what is special about me? There's so many yoga teachers. There's nothing special. And he said to me, no, 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 you are special and you're going to do it. And he said, you know, by age 30, this is what you're going to be doing. And and the amazing thing is, like, I turned 30 uh, in about a week. Um, and people have always asked me, like, how do you feel about turning 30? Because, you know, people are like, oh, I'm 30. And and for me, it's like, I'm so excited because, like, this is my time. Um, and so, yeah, he just, he just said, like, start working on it. And so I started doing every single – every single moment of my sobriety became devoted to this future – Um, Mm. and I actually tried to quit teaching more than once. Like I wanted to quit right away. And he's like, you're not ready. Like you don't have any income, any business. And then I tried to quit again and he's like, don't do it. And I got really lucky because I stayed in my job because I just didn't have an income enough yet to sustain. So I stayed in teaching for, um, about two years after that, like two years and a couple Mm -hmm. months, but then the pandemic hit and that was the best, worst thing. Obviously it was a terrible circumstance for so many people. But for me, a whole bunch of things happened at the start of the pandemic. So not only was I in work from home, but I was like the busy, 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 go, go, go. Like I have this private yoga client. I have that yoga job. I was teaching yoga spin bar. I was was coaching. (laughs) Yeah. I was working full time. I I was working full time and I was working for this gym in Abu Dhabi, teaching about six classes a week for them. And I was also organizing their yoga retreats abroad. Um, and my boyfriend was also my boss there. (laughs) And then the pandemic hit and we broke up and everything ended and I got fired from that job. And I was like, well, literally what do I do now? I'm in lockdown in my house. Mm -hmm. And that was when the whole thing started. And so I never, I started teaching yoga on Zoom, never thought to this day, like, cause like the idea of a Zoom yoga studio Mm -hmm. just like did not exist. Right. (laughs) And I never thought that it would become what it is. Um, Never thought I would be doing work in sobriety, right? I was about a year sober at that point. And um, I actually stumbled into that as well. Like I ended up offering yoga online for my recovery community. And I was like, wait, this is amazing. Like putting a bunch Mm. of sober people in a room and doing yoga, this is cool. (laughs) And so it's kind of been this thing of like, once it was almost like the the whole space had to be clear. Everything had to be clear because I wasn't going to give up all this stuff, like the yoga, the spin, the bar, the tutoring, like I wasn't going to quit all that, but I needed it all to be clear for me to just kind of like sit down and be like, let's make this thing happen. And then as soon as I got the momentum, it was just like, I, it was like, I was, I was like, this is my future. My life in Bali is my future. And I'm just going to do everything I can to make it happen. Hmm. And you know, I, I asked that question because I find that it's interesting. You say that you never, anticipated yourself working in the recovery community because I said the same thing. And I think a lot of people who do now work in the recovery community, it's such a personal thing. And so it feels mm-hmm. hard to share that with others. And also, of course, like I'm imposter syndrome and all the things that say like, who am I to do this? But yeah. the reason I asked is that I I find a lot of people coming to life after they quit drinking and this idea of, of your thirties being your time. That's how I feel. It's yeah. like, you couldn't pay me to be in my twenties again. They're like, I'm 32 yeah. and I feel so good and so established and grounded now. But I was sharing this with a, a client of mine the other day. I was like, you know what? I don't know that I've ever worked with somebody, talked to somebody who hasn't 
removed alcohol from their life in a, a substantial way and then said, life is just the same, just without alcohol. Everyone is, uh-huh. everyone says like, my life is exponentially better without this mm-hmm. one substance. And I have discovered my creativity. I have changed careers. We interviewed somebody last week who went from being a CPA to a recovery coach. It's like- Kevin. The, yeah, Kevin, exactly. The, the transformation that comes from removing this one substance that really in so many ways is suppressing who we truly are and suppressing our dreams and our ambitions and our personality and our ability to to look at the future and say, okay, I see this vision for myself and I'm going to go do that versus I see this vision for myself and I could never, I think is really, really powerful. Tell me more about, and I really like what you said about like how amazing it is to get a room full of sober people together to do yoga. I have this vision and I don't, I'm, I'm in my teacher training right now. So I, I'm a yoga, yoga hobbyist, if you will. But I have this vision. I have like a name for it. It's already, it's called Yoga Buzz and it's like Friday night yoga for oh, sober people who don't want to go out and drink or something. And like, I have no idea where it fits into my life. I have too many things. I have no idea where it fits into my life. But I agree with this idea that there's this really beautiful, powerful connection between yeah yoga and sobriety. So what does that look like to you? How do you perceive this connection or interconnectedness between what the heart of yoga is specifically, not necessarily just the movement, not necessarily just the asana, but yoga and being a person who doesn't drink alcohol? Yeah, absolutely. So yoga for me became such a big tool in my mental health. And then when I got sober, yoga was like my go-to thing when I was like navigating all that um, stuff that I was struggling with. And I didn't even really understand why it worked. I just understood that it worked. And I now I've gotten really into understanding it. And I actually run yoga teacher trainings kind of result mm-hmm. revolving around this. So my 200 hour is just a regular, I mean, it's not a regular yoga teacher training, but 200 hours open to anyone. And then I have a couple of other specialized courses. One is a 300 hour in mental health. And then I do a 30 hour sober curious yoga teacher training. And so I'm really cool. interested in this link. And what I've found is that yoga is kind of the biggest thing about yoga and how it works is that it helps us move from our sympathetic nervous system to our parasympathetic nervous. So it helps us Mm -hmm. move into a state from chronic stress to rest and digest. And so many people who are struggling, like for me, the more and more I do this work, the more I find that people are either struggling with their mental health independently of alcohol, and then alcohol becomes a coping mechanism, or maybe alcohol is creating, you know, hangover anxiety and Mm. depression and whatever. And so mental health becomes like a big part of sobriety for a lot of people. And so to have this tool that we can go, we can turn to when we're triggered, when we're um, stressed, when we're upset, when we're lonely, basically all the, all the feelings that we experience that lead us to drink. If we can go to our yoga mat instead, like anyone who has been through my challenges and is doing yoga every single day and doing the meditation practices and engaging with the community, like typically I find that they're successful because it's when you're not getting on the mat, when you're um, not taking time to meditate, when you're not using these tools that the stress becomes, you know, for me, the stress has in the past has become overwhelming. And then I've been triggered Mm. to like pick up a drink again, you know? And so Mm. there's like this connection between what it does for our mind 
that we're seeking in alcohol and now we can seek it in yoga and mm. um, and get the benefits without the hangover. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I, a lot of the work that I do is nervous system regulation and, and, and I have a very science-y brain. So the neuroscience makes sense to me. The, the physiology makes sense to me. And, and the way I explain it is exactly what you said about the parasympathetic nervous system. That's the part we're trying to activate from mm-hmm. our physical stress response of fight, flight, freeze, fawn, the part that brings us back down after is really what we want to do. And just yesterday, somebody asked me, what are, what are your go-tos? And I'm like, if I can do 10 or five cent salutations, like that will get me out of this yeah. panic crisis mode. And the thing that's so interesting for me, is like we, we approach this through one avenue. We approach this through say yoga and we start to build our toolbox with yoga for the sole purpose of, of getting through this thing we're doing with alcohol. But the thing is, is that this can apply to everything we do. This idea of this central nervous system regulation is so universal to all of the different human experiences we have that what I find is that people who who do this work and who build this toolbox specifically for sobriety end up having so many beautiful, brilliant coping skills for everything else that happens in their life. One of the things that I think is really interesting about yoga is I was reading more about the eight limbs and the yamas. And there's so many principles in yoga philosophy that I think really – and I, and I read it from the lens of a sober person who is in the recovery world and who has done this work for years. But yeah. I read the yogic philosophy and everything I read says like, there's no place in for alcohol in my yes. personal body, in my personal practice. Yeah. Can you tell us more about what that looks like for you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so connected to the yoga philosophy. So that was like kind of a life-changing thing for me as well, um, discovering there's one mentor teacher that I really admire in this world, um, Rolf Gates. He wrote a book mm. called Meditations from the Mat. And when I was 21, 22, getting into yoga, my yoga studio um, manager, I was working, you know, cleaning the studio in exchange for yoga. And she said, you know, you should read this book. And in this book, Rolf writes his interpretations of the yoga sutras from a modern day lens. And he actually is... Um, he identifies as a recovered alcoholic and he was in the mm-hmm. foster si- system and was a veteran and has just been through so much trauma, a, a black American. And so he's writing about his perspective of all of moving through all of this with yoga. And um, I actually met him from on my hundred days sober. I went down Amazing. to the yoga teacher training with him. Yeah. And then I was able to have him as a guest on my podcast last cool. week, which is like surreal. Um, but he, this text was game changing for me because I was raised without a religious background. And so I didn't mm-hmm. really have any toolkit for like interpreting and processing everything that I was going through and making sense of it until I came across the yoga sutras and like exactly what you say, like, you know, ahimsa, nonviolence, nonviolence mm-hmm. towards the self, nonviolence for yeah. others. Like once you see it in that sense and you're like, wait, everything I'm doing with alcohol, like my binge drinking, my partying, this is all very violent towards myself. Mm. You know, I'm literally making myself sick, making myself hungover, making myself anxious, putting this stuff in my body that's so bad for me. And it's like, once you see it from that lens, I 100% agree with you. And I think it took me a while to get to it, which is funny. So I read this book where he talks about his recovery and I 
was like, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me, like, because I'm not mm. an alcoholic. And so I just put it on the shelf. And then it's mm-hmm. so funny because however many years later, you know, it was 2019, so almost 10 years later, um, I was like, when I was grasping for sober role models in my early days, this is like, the I'm like, oh, Ralph Gates is sober. I should read mm. that book again. <laughs> yeah, picked it back up. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, they talk about cleanliness and, and all of these things, cleanliness yeah. of the body and all of these things. I'm like, it's really wild to me that now we find ourselves in a world where people market things like vinyasa and vino or I know. Uh, things like beer runs or it, yeah. it seems like alcohol has really started to infiltrate the wellness and the health community. It has. What's your take on that? It has, and I used to be part of it. Like I, mm. I it's funny when you mention a beer run. I'm like, oh yeah, I did that with my mom. Yeah, <laughs> we did, did like too. a and it was a fundraiser for a hospital. Like it was, mm. a, I'm pretty sure it was even a. I think it was a mental health fundraiser. <laughs> it was a long Ugh. time ago, but yeah, we ran to the end, and then we got a beer, and there was a concert. Mm. Um, I also used to do yoga and drinking, like beer, mm-hmm. um, yoga at the brewery. Um, I'm pretty sure I even put on a vinyasa and vino when I lived in Kuwait where I was like mm-hmm. serving my homemade wine. <laughs> um, Have everyone sign a waiver. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But yeah, now that I'm um, sober, uh, it re- this stuff really bothers me, especially mm-hmm. when I see how many sober people come to yoga as their refuge. You know, Mm. yoga is part of so much rehab, so many programs for people in recovery. And on every YTT I've been on, there's been at least one person who's openly identified as, you know, I'm in recovery, I'm a recovered Mm -hmm. alcoholic, or there's probably even people that haven't said it, but I'm sure, you know, all the YTTs I went on were before I got sober. So it would probably be a different experience if I walked around saying, you know, I'm sober. Like I'm sure more people would would talk about it. But I think it's really common for sober people to come to yoga for their healing and then for them to be pushed by these studios or even like yoga jokes. I'm or sorry, yeah. alcohol jokes in yoga. Like I'm sensitive to yeah. that. Like when teachers are talking about alcohol and I'm just like, this is so um people are just so vulnerable. They're in this vulnerable mm. state. And for us to be talking about alcohol and joking about it and it just doesn't feel appropriate but it almost takes you know you have to I I do have some empathy for people because I was once in their shoes and and they don't see the harm that it's causing Mm -hmm. they don't realize um until you're on this side of it and you're like that's actually really problematic and I I see the same thing happening in the mental health field too I had a a grad school friend who I haven't talked to in a long time she messaged me the other day and said I just wanted to let you know that what you share online about alcohol is starting to to resonate. She's like, I still drink, but I'm I'm starting to see it differently. Yeah. And what she said, she said, it's really interesting how the social work field and the people who are in the social work field still make those jokes about alcohol or talk about how they use it as self-care or talk about yeah. habits, how they de-stress from a stressful day of serving their clients and in, in being in the mental health field and still having this kind of distorted view of, of what it is that yeah. we are all consuming. And I like that you said that you have empathy for it because that's, that's the thing. Mommy wine culture was my thing. Mommy wine culture is my hill to die on and I will talk about it for days. And the reason I do that is because I bought into that so 
deeply when I was in early motherhood. And it's a really easy place to find yourself in because it's relatable. It's what everybody else is doing. It gives you this sense of camaraderie, of relaxation, celebration. But when you step away from it and realize what we have started to weave alcohol into and, and all the different areas that it is starting to show up in our lives, you get a more clear picture of just how harmful this is and just how many people out there are suffering or are struggling without ever saying a word and without ever feeling like they have this space to. So I think it's really very beautiful and and really cool that you are creating these spaces for sober curious people and especially this 30-hour sober curious. I I wrote it down. I'm like, okay, I'm going to add that to my mental list, this 30-hour sober curious yoga teacher certification because it really changes the experience when you have a feeling yeah. of community and safety. Tell me more about what that community looks like for you now. How do you, what is your sober community? How do you find connections with other people who are like-minded, especially in this world where it's it's still pretty uncommon? Yeah. So my big offering is Sober Curious Yoga. And what that is, it's like evolved over time. You know, originally it was just like, let's get a bunch of sober people in the room and and do yoga. And that's how it started. And now it it really has a structure to it. And so um, every Sober Curious Yoga class serves a little bit like a meeting. So there's an opportunity Mm. for a 15-minute check-in where people pick up the talking stick and share what's going on with them in a non-judgmental and inclusive safe space where um, we don't give advice, we don't interrupt, and we just, we practice, you know, the values of yoga in the space. And and then it depends on what the format is. So it might move straight into a, uh, a yoga flow, or I also have we had Sober Curious Yoga Circles for a while, which I'm now bringing back. The original, original thing was Sober mm. Girls Club. Um, originally, it was Sober mm-hmm. Girls Yoga and Sober Girls Club. And that's actually going to be making a comeback um, this April because I have found, you know, the value of Sober Curious Yoga is great because it's inclusive and we're open to, um, you know, people of all genders. But there is something really special about this, like this women's yeah. only space. And so um, I think it's yep. time for it to come to make a comeback. Um, mm. But that's kind of the, the work like that bookmark I do. that for myself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right. I think that especially for women, because so many of the recovery spaces in the world, like the 12 steps in AA, and yeah. we live also, especially I don't I, I speak for the United States culture, but we live in a culture where spaces are created for men and there are fewer spaces created for women. And there's a certain safety and a certain camaraderie that I find when I am in a space with other women. And and I particularly like, I just like working with women. That's who I work with in my, my coaching practice. And that's, those are the rooms that I'm in, but there's a really interesting a bond and, and connection that that really forms there. So I, I really agree with you on that. Tell me what has been the best gift you've received from sobriety and what has been the hardest thing you've experienced? I think the best thing has 100% been my business, my community, my life has just like transformed. And um, it's all, honestly sometimes even surreal that it's even happened. Like I've had a wonderful opportunity Mm. this week to really look back because I did, I did end up stopping by my school. Um, I was just driving by and literally the bell was ringing and the kids were all, 
on the street getting picked up. And I was like, oh my God, I'm literally here at dismissal time at the school. Like, this is weird. Mm. And so I just pulled in the car and I was like, I'm just going to see if they let me in campus. <laughs> and I went and I was, and I kind of walked around and, and it was like amazing because I, for the most part, I'm in Bali uh, surrounded by other yoga entrepreneurs and a lot of sober people. And so I forget how remarkable it really is. And then you have this opportunity to be surrounded by all these people that are like, wow, it's amazing what you've done and amazing what you've mm. created. And and so that was a really powerful kind of reflection. And, and I always am just grateful. You know, I wake up and I'm like, this is my life. Wow. I get to do what I love, help people. The purpose in that. Yeah. It's just, it's just amazing. And the hardest thing for sure, which has also been, has had some good things about it too, (laughs) but the hardest thing was I feel like I get more and more, um, like I lost a lot of friends. I feel like I'm more and more different from where I came from. And especially the deeper Mm. I get into yoga philosophy, like I know I, I'm becoming, you know, both my parents are scientists, for example. I grew up in like a very mm. modern kind of anti-religious, or not, I don't want to say anti-religious, but kind of like modern Toronto, you know, we didn't go to church. And so mm-hmm. to have this kid over here, like me talking about so much spirituality and like, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm just very different from my family and that's been hard. However, mm. the closer I get to that, like I feel like I've come around and around to it a few times, like, you know, when I first discovered yoga and then when I first had my breakdown and then when I finally got sober, I'm like, this is it. I'm just going to embrace who I am. I'm different mm. um, and I'm going to find my people. And I have, you know, I've moved to like an island yeah. in the middle of the <laughs> middle of nowhere and I found them. <laughs> and so I yeah. think – well. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think that's a hard thing a lot of people experience. Like you might not get into the whole spirituality thing, but you might just find like, look, I'm not like my friends anymore who want to drink so much mm. and that's okay. And it's, you really have to make an active effort to find your people and surround yourself with your people or else I think it's really easy to get back into your, your drinking ways. Yeah. Well, and I think that there, there, you know, there, there's like entrepreneur brain and there's science brain and mm-hmm. there, there are different styles of thriving that we each have. And I think that there's a personal development brain too. And I work with clients who say, this is hard and this sucks and I wish I didn't have to go through this. And my answer to that is, you know, it does. It can suck. This can be really hard. And it can be really frustrating that this is a challenge that we have or say mental health or whatever. But I find that working through this and personal development and learning about who you are and caring for your mental health and your body. It's hard and it's work, but it gives us this really deep, rich experience in life. And my take on it is, is thank God it's hard for me because of everything it has given me. And what you said, the the important asterisks to that is that there's so many of us out there who yeah. are on this journey of finding ourselves, of connecting to who we are internally, but also maybe on a more holistic global spectrum and and really knowing that there's a community of people whose brains work like yours mm-hmm. do and who have the same desires and who want to do this good hard work and who are there to support you and connect with you. And the connections that you have with those people are really strong and really intimate and really, really they give so much back. So as we are wrapping up, I always ask one last question on the podcast. If your story were to be written, if the book of Alex and alcohol or Alex and sobriety were to be written, what would it be called and what kind of story is it? 
Well, um, I actually wrote a book. Um, I, yeah, <laughs> that's so funny because I get a lot of those answers. So like, actually. I wrote a book and I have been – I actually got a Facebook notification as I was like getting ready to do this interview. It was like one year ago today, you finished – and it was like mm. a Facebook post where I had written, I finished the final draft of my memoir. And, um, mm. and so I finished the final proofreading. I went through – I think I finished it in 2020 and then I – worked on it with a book editor for a year. And then I tried to submit it to a bunch of publishing houses, got rejected, got rejected, got rejected. And now I think I might be moving forward. I do think that it had to hit a pause when it did so that I could kind of, you know, when it ended, I was still a teacher in Abu Dhabi. And now, you know, I'm living in Bali. Mm. So it it was not the right totally ending. different. Yeah. But the funny thing is like the whole thing of sober yoga girl, that actually was mm. the title of the book. And mm-hmm, that has mm-hmm. now evolved into so many things. Like that's my the mm. name of my podcast. Like that all came from the title of the book. And so um it's definitely mm-hmm. sober yoga girl for sure. Just gonna stick with yeah. that one. It, it it fits you well. Well, that, you know, I think that your story is so powerful and and really what we're doing here is is sharing these stories that somebody else is going to see themselves in and somebody else is going to see their way into sobriety or their way into living about alcohol or whatever they desire through the lens that you see it, through your lived experiences, through the goodness that yoga has brought to you, your life and to your sobriety. And, and that is why we share these stories. So Alex, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing your story so candidly. And I know there were some some things that you shared with us that are, are hard to talk about, but they are good and somebody out there really needs to hear your story. I know our community is going to want to connect with you. So how can they connect with you? What do you have going on in your world? What are you opening up in the next couple months? Amazing. Um, thanks so much. So you can find me on Instagram. Alex McRobs is my personal Instagram. My community is the mindfullifepractice.com. And um, within there, we have our Sober Curious Yoga community. I mentioned in the podcast that Sober Girls Yoga is making a comeback, which I'm really, really excited about. So Um, telling you I'm bookmarking that yeah filming some on-demand content and like relaunching the sober girls club so that's gonna be amazing and then I also have my first live in Bali events so we were like I was just kind of pausing on everything because you know it wasn't open for tourism Mm. there was a quarantine but it's officially been lifted and I have a group Mm. of people coming on my first sober yoga retreat in um, May so exciting I have another one in June in Mexico um, and oh, then, man. yeah, some yoga teacher trainings coming up in Bali. So really excited about that. Beautiful. Well, I really appreciate your time today and your story. And I am like seriously bookmarking some of those yoga things because that sounds like a really beautiful dream as well to, to go do this yoga in somewhere like Bali or Mexico. But Alex, thank you for your time today. Thank you for your story. And we will talk soon. Thank you so much, Beth. So nice to meet you. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Alex McRoberts. After my conversation with Alex, I went straight to my mat. My own yoga practice has honestly suffered getting Sober Stories off the ground, and she reminded me of the peace and the physical calming I have through movement. I also really appreciated her candor about how sometimes it gets worse before it gets better in early sobriety. These are really important things for people to see. It's not always sunshine and rainbows, but it is good and beautiful on the whole. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories, reach more people, change more lives, one good review at a time. 
And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you shared it with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your big takeaways and you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Alexis Archuleta on the mixing and podcast genius side, Callie Williams is our community and engagement lead, Daniela Marty for our graphic design, and every single person who has a hand in what we are building. Until next week, my friends.